show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago and it's gone right to my head. Wherever I may roam, on land or sea or foam, you can always hear me sing this song. Show me the way to go home. Hello and welcome to the virtual pub for some drinks, trivia and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim and I am joined by my drinking buddy, Lyric. What is it that we are serving today? I've got me a schmancy tanqueray with severe oranges. An orange G&T. Because? <laughs> because we're going <laughs> <we're gonna> to be talking all things orange today, aren't we? Yeah. Yes, we are. Oompa Loompas, um, Tango, Knickknacks, Watsits. Okay, first of all, um, we already did Oompa Loompas um, oh, last Oh yeah, time. last week, yeah, okay. Um, so that's goldfish. <laughs> if you can get, yeah, you are a goldfish. <laughs> and if you can get Knickknacks into this in some way, then well done. Okay. Um, I am once again in the office, actually, recording, uh, so I brought a hip flask. <laughs> <laughs> Is there... Brief. Is the of... meeting room you're in kind of quite open? Can people see you? No, they cannot. It's quite. Okay. This is why I'm in like a phone booth cupboard, so people can't see me doing this. <laughs> but I'm swigging a Negroni out of um, <laughs> out of a hip flask. If you don't know what Negroni has got to do with oranges, you will learn this episode. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Yum. <laughs> uh, it's it's a good image, isn't it? Uh, so the reason we've chosen to do orange right now as well is because it's time of release it will be nearly i think a week away from king's day in the netherlands which is a national holiday they have otherwise known as koningsdag uh, and that is celebrated currently on the 27th of april or the 26th if that happens to be a sunday and it marks the birth of king willem alexander the current monarch um, when the Dutch monarch is female, the holiday is known as Koninginnedag, or Queen's Day, uh, as it was under Queen Beatrix until 2013, when she uh, abdicated. Uh, and that was celebrated on the 30th of April then. So the holiday goes back uh, to 1885. It was initially observed on the 31st of August, and was then Princessdag, or Princess's Day. And that started on the fifth birthday of Princess uh, Wilhelmina, uh, who was heir to the Dutch throne. And then when she uh, took the throne on November 1890, the holiday acquired the Queen's Day name. And then it was celebrated on the um, 31st of August 1891. In September 1948, Wilhelmina's daughter, Juliana, came to the throne and the holiday was then moved to her birthday which is the 30th of April and the holiday has been celebrated more or less then since uh, 1949. Uh, it is mostly known why, why I haven't yet got to why this has got anything to do with drinking an orange. Um, <laughs> if you go there and it's a great time to visit the Netherlands if you enjoy raucous festivities and I mean it is raucous. Uh, you're going to see a lot of people dressed in orange drinking heavily. <laughs> this is our first thing for the orange episode. People drinking, wearing orange. <laughs> drinking whatever they want. Um, it's actually predominantly, sort of seriously, uh, known nationwide for its free, free, market, uh, free market, 
which is where the Dutch sell their used items without needing any kind of permit and not having to pay VAT. So it's basically like a nationwide day of eBaying. <laughs> they all just car boot it for the day and people go absolutely wild for it. You can just buy and resell anything. Um, it comes along with obviously bigger large scale celebrations, many uh, concerts and special events in public spaces, particularly in Amsterdam. If you go there, it's absolutely rammed. Um, they have outdoor concerts at the um, the main kind of museum plane space, which is uh, big and open, and 800,000 people gather there. Uh, to make sure that people can get home and that they don't get too messy, all the events on that day have to finish by 8 o'clock, um, apart from the museum plane one that finishes at 9. So they have an early finish time to try and make sure that everyone gets home. Of course, the problem with designing something like that you know, sort of don't stay out too late, go home early, is that everyone just goes out the night before. <laughs> so recent years, uh, all the parties and concerts have been held in the evening before King's Day. Um, so uh, the the night before is known as like King's Night or Queen's Night, Nacht, and um, they all take to the streets and the squares and the canals and they party through the night and all night. Um, what they try to do is sort of drink through the evening and then go to the free market the next day. <laughs> Gosh, can you imagine so, if I tried that? <laughs> yeah, so you basically got lots of young, drunk slash hungover people crashing this countrywide car boot sale and just buying random things. <laughs> I suppose it's a good way to just get rid of any old shit you don't want because you could just get a drunk person to buy it. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they, they will crash early and go home by 9pm, but they've been up since the night before is what happens now. Uh, there's a traditional game that, they, that people play um, on King's Day, which I think you'll enjoy. Oh, it's called um, Spiker Poopin'. <laughs> Which translates to nail poop. Oh, wow. <laughs> so what you do is you tie a long piece of string around your waist and then dangling the bottom of the string is a nail. And your goal is to try and get the nail inside the tiny opening of a beer bottle um, or something similar. So you put the beer bottle on the ground, you've got the nail on the string around your waist and you've got to kind of squat over it so it looks like you're pooping the nail into the bottle. So there's no poo involved, I mean... It's better no. than I expected. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just the action of it. No actual poop. <laughs> so it's already doing better than whales. Um, <laughs> typically, if you go there and all, you see all the people partying, people will be wearing orange, bright orange clothing. A lot of people dye their hair. They all have accessories. Like, everyone does it. Uh, and that is in honour of the House of Orange Nassau, which is the ruling family of Netherlands. Of course, they also colour their drinks orange. Uh, the whole thing is called Orange Madness. Uh, the, the House of Orange, I will talk a bit more about later, actually, but um, they they played quite a crucial role in the politics and the government of Netherlands and elsewhere in Europe, um, particularly since uh, William the Silent organised the Dutch revolt uh, against Spanish rule and uh, which after the 80 years war led to the independent dutch state 
So this is why it's so important to them. It basically sort of formed their country uh, after the uh, after the Dutch revolts. I, you know, I've been travelling around these parts lately, and the other day I was in Delft, uh, which is mostly known for ceramics. But I went mm. to a museum in Delft, and they had half of it was like a the life of Vermeer exhibit because he uh, came from Delft. He was born and raised in Delft. Uh, the artist and then the other half was about uh, William the Silent and it, it tells you kind of all about the the Dutch Revolution revolts uh, and his coming to the throne and all this sort of stuff but it's also really I mean calls probably the wrong word but he was assassinated in that building <laughs> that you go to this museum and they pretty much like do his criminal outline thing criminal outline you know crime scene yeah <laughs> and you can see in the wall where the gun was fired that uh killed him where the shop lands so mm. they take you like through his life story and then where it ends with his death was actually where he died on the steps you can stand there and be like oh that's quite extreme <laughs> um but it was really interesting it's a great it's a great place to visit and learn about that kind of family and history mm. um you are typically not allowed to have more than one alcoholic beverage in your possession at a time in public spaces on this day in the Netherlands. They you really can't be have... double parked. No, you can't be double parked. Again, it's one of those it's one of those interventions where they probably thought that'll slow people down. <laughs> sure. But actually, as as we know, if you're double parked, you just chin it really quickly yeah. and then crack on with the next one. Uh Six packs. I've got a note here. Six packs and kegs of beer are considered more than one drink. <laughs> <laughs> I love and how that has to exist because you've got somebody like, no, it's one. It's just all stuck together as one. <laughs> there are so many rules and attempts at curbing people's uh, looseness on this day. Um, <laughs> lots of written down rules, but having kind of seen it in action, it doesn't work. Um, alcohol is usually not allowed in trains and at train stations from seven on the night preceding King's Day to 5 a.m. on the day following King's Day. Um, okay. And drinking alcohol in control of a boat is not permitted. <laughs> These are just some of the guidance notes you'll see. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I've got a couple of orange colored cocktails, which you might see uh, on the day. One is a, a specifically called a King's Day cocktail as created by Simon Difford, he of many cocktails fame, uh, that he makes with Kettle One Vodka, which is a Dutch vodka, King's <laughs> Ginger, which we've spoken about before uh, and, and is Dutch, Orange Curacao, also Dutch, and then Carrot Juice and Bitters. That so doesn't sound uh, nice. You don't like carrot juice? Mm, just that combination of things is not a thing I want. I, I think... Orange, ginger, and carrot is a classic flavour combination. Um, you yeah, have that a lot. It's more like a health drink than a cocktail, isn't it? Oh, sure. It's got three alcohols in it. It's too healthy for you. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies. <laughs> Maybe in that case, you prefer the Dutch Negroni. Um, which is, you know, typically Negroni, gin, vermouth, and bitters. Specifically in a Dutch one, you get the Jennifer, uh, the precursor to gin, the Dutch version. And you would also specifically use orange bitters or something that's um, that's a Dutch version of that. Or apple if you can't get your hands on it. Typically, though, most people do just drink beer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Those orange cocktails exist. Most people just drink beer. Uh, I tried to... I thought I'd talk about Orangiboom at this point because it's a Dutch beer. It's got orange 
in the name. But um, it turns out it's not that interesting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to give you a really quick version that um, Aranjaboom was uh, founded in Rotterdam in 1671. It closed there in 1990. They moved to Breda. The um, brewery was sold to Interbrew in 1995, was closed in 2004 by InBev, Interbrew's successor. Um, and then production of the brand of Orangibu moved to Domelsch um, in October 2013. Orangibu was relaunched as a quirky new European-style lager. In a nutshell, it was a pretty generic beer yeah. that kind of came and went in that popularity it was relaunched a few years ago i haven't really seen it around very much but i do remember drinking it at university i was gonna say uni it seemed to have its heyday and then meh, yeah last mm. instead as a sort of um obliquely orange theme of a story that was beer based i thought i'd tell you this because this i think this is um this is super interesting i saw a film uh, recently and it was on channel four as well mm-hmm. uh, it was a documentary about um called villain and frida which is about the gay painter villain arandeus and the lesbian cellist frida balinfante and they were um these unlikely heroes of the dutch resistance during world war Two. so um they uh they sort of looked after people who, um, you know, would have been persecuted by the Nazis, being Jewish, um, obviously. And they would do things like um, forge documents. So because he was an artist, he was kind of very good at being involved in the forgery. They would help smuggle people out. And they had this big sort of Ocean's Eleven style heist where they blew up the records office. So there was this records office in Amsterdam and, um, you know, that kind of listed where all the Jewish people were and all the immigrants were and all this sort of stuff. And they exploded it. (laughs) They set it all on fire and it it helped. It definitely kind of helped people, gave them enough time to get their fake documents or or get out of the country. Mm. Um, So if you have opportunity to watch that, I recommend it. Um, I will get on to the drinks part and the orange part. So Frida Belafante was the first woman to conduct a European orchestra um, in addition to being a a bloody war hero (laughs) and uh, she needed some funding for these uh, these resistance efforts and now Henry Heineken he of Heineken brewery uh, was the richest man in the country in the Netherlands and he was also on the board of the Dutch orchestra um, for whom uh, Frieda played so she went to him and he was fully supporting of her and her efforts, but he couldn't directly fund it, couldn't give her money because all of his bank withdrawals were being monitored by the Nazis and they'd taken complete control of Heineken's brewery profits. So Frieda had the idea that he could buy her cello um, and instead of paying the few euros that it was worth, he paid a thousand euros for it. <laughs> sort of made out that it was this very special cello. I mean, in a way it was. But mm. that was how he managed to, Henry Heineken managed to fund the um, the Nazi, the resistance against the Nazis in the Netherlands. Such a cool story. It's mm. very cool. He was a good person. Um, and then, unfortunately, um, Willem, was executed uh, for his resistance efforts during the war 
But Frida, actually, first of all, she managed to um, escape being found by disguising herself as a man. She lived as a man for kind of a period of time and uh, 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 they didn't find her, but she did eventually manage to escape. Um, I think she skipped to Switzerland for a bit first. She did manage to get her cello back and then she immigrated to the United States where she continued to work in music and she was the founding artistic director and conductor of, drum roll, the Orange County Philharmonic. Yay! Full circle. <laughs> uh, yeah, and she, I think she lived into the 90s, uh, the 1990s, and um, was, yeah, was kind of just very progressive and, and awesome and managed to continue being a conductor. There you go. That was that was a better beer and orange story than um, Orange Boom, wasn't it? Yeah. It's much more thrilling than, yeah, we used to drink it at uni. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, I'm um, going to take a sip. What have you got? I have got the exciting story of Triple Sec. Mm. Mm. Strap in, everyone. <laughs> um, so Triple Sec, uh, it's been popular for over 150 years. Um, and it's traced back to the Dutch East India Company. So they used to create orange liqueurs by... Um, steeping dried orange peels from places such as the island of Curaçao, as you mentioned earlier, popular still to this day in cocktails. Um, this was called Curaçao liqueur, and unlike triple sex, which contain only the flavour of orange peel, um, the Dutch version includes herbs, spices, and comes in lots of different colours, such as clear, orange or blue. So the Cormier distillery claims that Jean-Baptiste Cormier and his wife Josephine invented triple sec in 1834 in their kitchen in Saumur, France. Um, so orange liqueur was rising in popularity after the Dutch had introduced Curaçao. Um, and the Cormiers wanted to create a version that would be kind of true to the orange fruit. So they wanted it to be crisp, clean, and they wanted orange essential oils to be the main feature of the drink. And to do that, they used bitter oranges that weren't even orange. They were still kind of green um, when they were using them. That meant that the essential oils were kind of still in the peel rather than in the flesh of the fruit. Uh, and they used bitter oranges that were native to Haiti and sweet oranges from Valencia to balance up the flavour. So they would sun dry the different peels and after at least 48 hours, they'd start distilling this mixture in copper pots. Uh, they would then put them through a third distillation to purify the flavour, which we think is where it got the name triple sec because it's triple mm. distilled. Um, <clears throat> so it's usually made from a spirit derived from sugar beet, which is used because of its neutral flavour in which orange peel is steeped. The oranges, um, as I mentioned, harvested when they're still green, uh, and it's distilled and mixed with more neutral spirit, water, and powdered beet sugar resulted in the final liqueur. The process creates a spirit that has a very strong and distinct orange flavor. Uh, so not far on from there, in 1885, Cointreau was created. Uh, and it was called Quantro Triple Sec and was quickly became one of the most popular brands uh, of Triple Sec. Um, however, 
there's an ongoing argument slash debate whether Contro is a triple sec or not. So Contro okay. claims that it is not a triple sec. <laughs> um, I'll go into that. So All Contro, right. uh, when it was created, it was called Curacao Blanco Triple Sec. Um, but according to them, it's more than a triple sec because quite simply, triple sec is the generic name used for any orange flavored spirit. While as an orange liqueur, like Contro, it goes a step further. It's an officially recognised spirit category and therefore it has to go through certain methods and production kind of tick boxing requirements for it to be officially recognised as a liqueur. So Contro are very, very protective about that and they don't like to be used, uh, used um, put in the category of tri- triple sec. So, um, yeah, when it was created, it was trademarked under the name Triple Sec, but it's a term that they've abandoned over time as it's kind of fallen into that official category. Um, I had a quick look at their website and they do stress that at every opportunity. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And they um, kind of support it with an extra bit of marketing. They say, you know, rather than just a triple sec, Contro adds the guarantee of an exceptional richness of 40 plus aromas, quality sweet and bitter orange peels from the world's finest terroirs and 170 years of know-how. So they're very, very right. particular about it. Okay. <laughs> um, so in, in a nutshell, is it marketing bullshit or not? Um, it's it's not. I mean, according to Contro, they are right. You know, it's triple sec is just a generic term. Um, it's an orange mm-hmm. flavored spirit. There's no regulations around quality production method. Um, there's no official definition. Uh, no quality requirements that must be met to carry the name. So there can be huge differences between one triple sec and another. Um, so I think. I mean, it's an orange-flavoured spirit. <laughs> to you and I, there's probably not much difference, but I think to to the Contra family, it is, it, it's a passion of theirs. <laughs> sure. So speaking of which, the Contra family. So the distillery was set up in 1849 by Adolphe Contro. He was a confectioner. And his brother, Edouard Jean Contro, Quantro. Uh, they first started actually making cherry liqueur. That was their first big success. Um, but they found bigger success when they blended sweet and bitter orange peels and pure alcohol from sugar beets. Sounds a bit like triple sack to me. Um, <laughs> the first bottles were sold in 1885. An estimated 13 million bottles are now sold each year in more than 150 countries. Um, 90% of the production is exported and it was family owned until 1990 when it merged with Remy Martin. So it now is uh, Remy Contro, uh, publicly traded under that name. They've since gone on to make different variations. You can see um, on their website a Contro Noir, which is a kind of mix of the Contro and the Remy Cognac together to create this new one that um remy contro is often preferred or not preferred but more often drunk neat or over ice more so than the regular contro regular contro tends to be more used like a triple sec as an additional ingredient to cocktails Mm -hmm. 
Um, the production method pe- uh, methods and recipes are strict family secret. Um, they, well, it's a secret. You don't know what's happened or changed, but they have said that the recipe has been tweaked over the years. Uh, but that's about as much as they'll give away. You can have tours of the facility to take a look, but for photos are restricted in certain areas to protect the process. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a mystery, is Quantro. Which is interesting because it's not... I don't know if I'm just being shady, but I feel like there's a lot of smoke and mirrors and marketing and protection like no, around. like no one cares. Around, yeah. Something <laughs> like, like, all right, Quandre, you keep your secrets. <laughs> we don't care. But I I did find it quite interesting where on the Quantra website, there was a section uh, on cocktails and recipes. And there was like a Q&A section. And one of the question was, can I... Um, can I use Quantro for instead of triple sec where it's asked for in, in recipes? And they were like, yeah. <laughs> so I just thought, well. Right, exactly. You can't have it both ways, can you? You can't be like, we're really special and we're not a triple yeah. sec, but do use us in every recipe that requires triple sec. It's like, well, 100%. 100%. come on now. Do you know what? I've, so, I've got triple sec in my Negroni. It's not a Quantro. It is oh. specifically a triple sec. Does it feel a bit, you know, shit? According to Quantro, it'd be crap. You haven't got the uh, no. The considering I'm swigging aromas. it, considering <laughs> I'm swigging it out of a hip flask, it's delightful. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it was Is quite interesting for, um... reads. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I thought I was going to go into a lovely world of, <clears throat> you know, the history of triple sec, the history of Quantro. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me, but actually, they've just got beef with each other, and it was all a bit pe- petty. Yeah. Good to know. Good to know. Mm. Um, I'll tell you. I might tell you a bit about um, a couple of cocktails involving it later on. But first, Ooh. I thought we should explore more about orange as a concept. Okay. <laughs> you know, this, I wasn't. You know, I wasn't going to. You know, I wasn't going to not explore etymology. Uh, I, do you know what? I haven't gone as deep into like the psychology of color and color color theory and stuff as I might have done. I do find the history of color and psychology of color really interesting because mm. it's so tied to language. Uh, I may have mentioned this before, but you know like how um, in our culture, in, in English speaking at least, we distinguish between blue and green as being different colours. Mm. But there are some cultures that don't have a word for blue. And it means that they actually can't tell the difference between a blue and a green. Because mm. they have no word for it, they can't see it as being a different thing in the way that we can. So we see colours based on what we name them. Isn't that crazy? This is too deep for me. I know. So I wasn't <laughs> going to get into that, but I just Blowing did. my mind. Let's, let's, yeah, let's take it back. Um, let's talk about the colour orange. So in, in Europe and America, surveys show that orange is the colour most associated with amusement, unconventional, extroversion, warmth, fire, energy, activity, danger, taste, and aroma. So it's a very exciting colour. And obviously it's been the national colour of the Netherlands and the House of Orange. It's also a political colour, that of Christian democracy, um, most uh, Christian democratic political parties, and in Asia, an important symbolic colour in Buddhism and Hinduism. Um, Do you know this uh whether the orange fruit or orange color came first no so the orange color is named after the fruit 
So the fruit I, orange came I feel like I've heard that somewhere before. Yeah, I think it's one of those ones that's that. getting increasingly known. Um, mm. So in English, the colour orange is named after the appearance of a ripe orange fruit. That word comes from old... There's, there's quite a trail about to happen. Old French orange uh from the old term for the fruit pomme d'orange the french word in turn comes from italian arancia based on the arabic narange from the persian narang derived from the sanskrit <laughs> naranga which in turn comes from the dravidian which is sort of south india root word uh naranja which refers to bitter orange in tamil and malay so the, it's got a long root, but the etymological root sort of follows the trade route, if you see what I mean, <laughs> from mm. India coming over. Um, the earliest known recorded use of orange as a colour name in English is 1502. And that was from a description of clothing purchased for Margaret Tudor, a.k.a. Henry VIII's older sister uh, and Queen of Scotland. Before... The word orange was introduced to the English-speaking word. We did have the word saffron, um, also known as uh, krog, and that referred to the saffron colour. So that orange was referred to as yellow red for reddish orange, or yellow krog for yellowish orange. So you had you used kind of the two words to depict what we would just mm -hmm. now call orange. Alternatively, orange things were very often just described as red. And you can still see that in things we call today that are orange, like the red deer, red hare, the red planet, and robin redbreast. All of those things are actually orange, but we call them red from a time when we didn't have the word orange. Um, back to the House of Orange Nassau. So they were one of the most influential royal houses in Europe in the 16th and 17th century. Uh, it goes back to 1163, the Principality of Orange, which was a, uh, a feudal state north of Avignon in southern France, and it took its name not from the fruit. <laughs> so we've got two words, of, two words that are both orange. One comes from the fruit for the colour, and one comes from, well, not the fruit, and goes to um, the, this royal family. What it does come from is a um, Roman Celtic settlement on the site, which was founded in sort of 35 BCE and was named Arausio after a Celtic water god. However, the name was slightly altered and the town associated with the colour because it was the route by which quantities of orange were brought from southern ports um, like Marseille to northern France. So it is partly to come from the fruits, to be honest. It was inspired, but also there is another another route to it. And the um, the family, the Prince of Orange, adopted the name and the colour orange as well in the 1570s. Uh, they broke away from the Vatican as part of kind of all this uh, revolution and, and the, the war uh, into Protestantism, which is why orange or gold, as it's called on the Irish flag, for example, is associated with that branch of Christianity. In the going back to uh, carrots, your, your favourite um, mixer. <laughs> In the 18th century, Dutch farmers bred a variety of carrot that was orange. 
Um, and this was as a tribute most likely to William of Orange. That long Dutch orange carrot that they created and is first described in 1721 is the ancestor of our current orange carrots, which are most common here, uh, the orange horn carrot, um, which was named after the town of Horn in the Netherlands. But prior to this, carrots from Asia were usually purple and those in Europe were either white or red. Um, they have had a bit of a re-emergence. I think you will see rainbow carrots around now in supermarkets because it's quite pretty to see all the colours. But yeah, the most recent version of the carrot is the orange one that's most popular. I'm still and most then... excited that there's a town called Horn. <laughs> yes, there is. There is. <laughs> put it on the spreadsheet. Um, in oh, to pick up a bit more on kind of the Asian Asian culture, why orange is special there? Because I mentioned where well, you see it in Buddhism and Hinduism, orange is a very sacred color. In Confucianism as well, which is the what's the philosophy sort of a religion as well of ancient China, orange was the color of transformation. So. In China and India, the colour took its name uh, not from the orange fruit, but again from saffron. Um, this this was a much more kind of commonly understood as the orangey colour back then, um, and still is in Asia. And it, it, you know, it's if you think about it, it's the most expensive dye you can get in Asia, so it's very special. And according to Confucianism, existence is governed by the interaction of uh, what they call the male active principle, or the yang, and the female passive principle, the yin. Yellow was the colour of perfection and nobility, and red was the colour of happiness and power. So yellow and red were compared to light and fire, spirituality and sensuality. They were seemingly opposite, but also complementary. So out of the interaction of yellow and red uh, comes orange, which is the colour of transformation. That's why in Asian philosophy and religions origins held as so sacred it's to do with that understanding of what the colours mean but also that their principal dye to get that would be saffron which is very expensive mm -hmm. I thought I'd just pick up on a couple more orange dye things while we're in the orange dye territory um, because you will probably be consuming orange dye in some drinks um, <laughs> if it if it looks orange it's probably got orange dye in it um, so the I just look at the natural ones rather than the unnatural ones because mostly that's what you will get these days because um, people are too worried not to have natural food colours. So anatto is one which is made from the seeds of the acute tree. Anatto contains carotenoids which is the same thing that gives carrots uh, and other vegetables their orange colour. Um, anatto is used to dye uh, cheeses for example, so uh, Gloucester cheese it uses that. Um, and that's been doing that since the 16th century. Um, it's commonly used to colour American cheeses as well, lots of snack foods, cereals, butter, margarine. Um, and it's also used as body paint to native uh, as body paint for native populations in Central and South America. And in India, you will see women often put it, um, it's called something different, it's called Sindor, on the hairline, which um, indicates that they are married when you see that. So that's the carotenoid one. Another very popular one, much cheaper than saffron, is to use turmeric, which is a very common spice in South Asia, Persia, Middle East. And it's not carotenoids, it's curcuminoids is the pigment. And that's used as the dye these days for Buddhist monk robes. Um, obviously it's used in curry powders, but also to give flavour to mustard. Um, and it's used in a lot of... Um, 
canned drinks now in the US, ice creams, yogurts, popcorn, um, and it is listed as a food color E100. So uh, if you people still, I think, think that E numbers are really bad things, but it just means it's registered as safe to consume. <laughs> so yeah, if you see E100 and you're like, oh no, what's that? It's turmeric. Have at it. Um, <laughs> And finally, I thought I'd mention paprika uh, is used a lot uh, to colour things orange as well. Uh, that does have natural carotenoids. So it's, uh, paprika is made from chilli peppers. And that, again, is used to colour cheese, spice mixtures, but orange juice as well, quite commonly, uh, is used in. Mm. They also feed it to chickens to make their egg yolks more orange. Oh, That's where your orange yolks come from, because we all know how like, badly they're treated and it would just look completely anemic so they feed the paprika to make it look healthy jesus so that was a i ended on the wrong one there didn't yeah. i yeah um I, I can make it nice again yeah please do fun fact uh as we know i work in the drinks industry mm-hmm. um i've been working on a range of mixers and the one that we wanted to be a nice vibrant pink color we do actually use black carrot extract to get that color very nice. So there I go with my carrot mixes. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> classic. <laughs> um, I'd like to talk about wine, please. Ooh, yes. Orange wine. Mm. <clears throat> so place your bets. Is it the fruit or is it the colour? I mean, I know the answer to this. Mm, so I'm going to let the <laughs> listeners answer. Okay. What, what is that you're saying? What? Uh, oh, you idiot. Ah, oh, you're wrong. It's not made with oranges. <laughs> <laughs> it's the colour. Uh, so what is an orange wine? It's a type of white wine that's made by leaving the grape skins and seeds in contact with the juice, which creates a nice deep orange-hued finished product. Um, to make an orange wine, you first take white grapes, mash them up, Put them in a large vessel, often cement or ceramic. Then you typically leave the fermenting grapes alone for anything from like four days right up to over a year. Depends what you're going for. Um, But most importantly, the skins and seeds still attached. This is a very natural process that uses little to no additives, sometimes not even yeast. And because of all this, they taste very, very different to regular white wines and have a sour taste and a nuttiness from oxidisation. It's believed that the term orange wine was coined by the wine importer David Harvey. He used it to describe a non-interventionist style of white winemaking. Feel free to myth bust me on that one when you're editing this, Tim, but that's what I read. (laughs) Um, but as well as the term orange wine, you may also hear ramato, which means auburn in Italian. And it typically refers to Italian Pinot Grigio, which is made in an orange wine style. Um, so what does it taste like? Um, they've been described as all sorts of things in it, by different people and reviewers. So some of the words used to describe orange wines robust and bold with honeyed aromas of jackfruit to anyone that's not vegan jackfruit is a fleshy tropical fruit um hazelnut brazil nut bruised apple uh wood varnish i don't know if i'd like my wine to be described as wood varnish but apparently it's been not mine the orange wine uh i would not describe my prosecco as uh no wood varnish varnish would be a step up for your wine (laughs) 
It was very orange, though. <laughs> um, also, it's been described as flavors of linseed oil, juniper, sourdough, and dried orange rind. Mm-hmm. On the palate, they're very big, dry, and even have tannin, like a red wine, with a sourness similar to fruit beer. Uh, they're quite intense, so if you've never had one before, maybe make sure you're sitting down <laughs> before you first have your orange wine. Uh, so where does it come from? The process of making orange wine, unsurprisingly, is very, very old. Uh, but it has had a reinvigoration uh, that's kind of resurfaced in the last 20 odd years. Um, but most modern day winemakers look back as far as 5,000 years where wines fermented in the big subterranean vessels called Kevri. I think we've talked about them in the past. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, it, that's kind of where they date back to five thousand years from those uh, Kevri um, fermented wines. Uh, orange wines are still very rare, but there are lots of countries now that have a growing interest in it. So, I'm going to take you on a little tour around the world of where to find your orange winemakers. Spreadsheet at the ready. Okay, first stop Italy. Uh, so most of the orange winemaking in Italy is up north. Um, Along the Slovenian border, uh, there's an area called Friuli Venezia Guglia. Uh, here you can find orange wines that are produced with the indigenous grapes of that region. Uh, they include Sauvignon Vert, Ribola Giala, and Pinot Grigio. Uh, the orange wine process was popularized in Italy by winemaker Josco Gravner, who first attempted an orange wine in 1997. So not that long ago. Mm. Uh, since we're on the border, let's pop over to Slovenia. Um, just over the border is um, a region, I'm going to say this very badly, sorry to any Slovenians, Gorish <laughs> uh, Kabarda in Slovenia. Uh, it has a long history of orange winemaking. The wine is very well integrated there. Uh, you'll often see orange wines poured in standard glasses, like beer glasses there as well. Um, as well as orange wine, there's another very interesting wine to be found there called Motnik. Um, that's again made with a natural method uh, in where the barrels are disinfected by smoking herbs like rosemary and bay leaves and sage. And then they pop the wine in there, giving it a very nice, intense flavour. Um, from Slovenia, we will go to Georgia, since Georgia is most famous for its Kevri aged wines that I mentioned earlier. Um, the grape of choice from Georgia is one that I'm going to struggle to pronounce. It's Arkatsiteli. Um, so this grape is known to produce a wine with a really deep orange hue. Um, in the United States, there are some uh, more experimental producers that are starting to make natural wines and are going into the orange wine technique, particularly in New York, actually, where they use that same grape that's popular in Georgia that I'm not going to attempt to say again. <laughs> in Australia, uh, lots more winemakers starting to delve into the natural and orange wine worlds, um, primarily with Sauvignon Blanc, which unsurprisingly works wonders in this style. A Sauvignon Blanc grape made in an orange wine style is second to none, I've read. I will try mm. one. Uh, in France, there's a region east of Burgundy that produces a rich orange-hued wine. 
It's the Jura region. They're quite famous for their cheese, but they also make nutty tart wines called Vinjon and Cote de Jura. They both use the oxidative style of winemaking with a rare grape called Savagnin and sometimes also Chardonnay. Um, while these wines use a slightly different winemaking method, they press off the skins. Um, they still have a very similar taste to orange wines. And I'm going to finish it off with some food pairing, because if you're all feeling a bit like, mm, yeah, I want some orange wine and you're going to go and buy some, mm-hmm. pair it with some good food. Uh, because they're very bold, they pair well with equally bold foods. So curry dishes, Moroccan cuisine, Ethiopian, um, Korean dishes with fermented kimchi and traditional Japanese cuisine, including fermented soybeans, just big, bold flavours go yeah. very well. I can see that Mm-mm. fermented stuff. Um, I had my very first orange wine with you, and mm. I bet you don't remember it. I think I do. Obvious reason. Oh, do you? I think it was on the beer mile, not far from your house. Nope. Nope. That must have been the green wine then. <laughs> that was <laughs> that was the green wine we had at the Portuguese restaurant. Damn. Um, Vinho um, no, we are going way back into our history because it was at a restaurant in Estonia. It oh, was that's why we... I don't remember it. Yep, it was exactly. <laughs> <laughs> For anyone wondering about that story, go to the Estonia <laughs> episode, which I think is like episode two or three or something. Um, yeah, we went to we went to a lovely uh, restaurant in Estonia in Tallinn, which was all about kind of. Um, local ingredients and, and natural and stuff and um, they had orange wine on the menu um, which I had and I, th- I believe one of our colleagues had I think you tried some and didn't like it and had a beer <laughs> <That's> <laughs> from, <about right. laughs> from my memory <laughs> oh, that was the best God. time I had to then. my memory's so bad because I'm, so, I'm glad you chipped in with that because I was about to say I haven't had orange wine before I'm going to try one <laughs> <laughs> well, twenty-seven years ago, whenever we met, you went to town. <laughs> um, shall I tell you? Should we talk about uh, orange, the fruit? I'm going to mm, enough detail about yes, that. Yes, we've talked a lot about colours, haven't we? So, the orange is a hybrid between a pomelo and a mandarin. Hmm. Um, indeed. Uh, do you, you must be familiar with mandarin? Do you know what a pomelo is? Uh. I, I'm, I was going to say something rude. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Pomelo Anderson. It's not that. Um, so it's... Um, I describe it as being quite like a grapefruit. It's got a very thick rind. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's quite sour. It's sort of, yeah, I guess kind of think halfway between a grapefruit and an orange maybe. But yes, yeah, so an orange is a hybrid of those two things. And it originated in the region that goes across southern China, northeast India, Myanmar. The earliest mention of sweet orange is in Chinese literature from around, um, it's three, actually specifically, 314 BCE. Uh, Orange trees are the most cultivated fruit tree in the world. Uh, In 2019, 79 million tonnes of oranges were grown worldwide, with Brazil producing 22% of the total, followed by China and India. Although it came from China and India, Brazil is now the biggest uh, producer. But yeah, it's been around since the 4th century BCE. Citrus trees are all interfertile. 
So taxonomy can be quite difficult <laughs> with these sorts of things. <laughs> Chances are, if you pick any random citrus fruit, it will be a hybrid between one thing and another because you can cross them all. So other citrus groups that are known as oranges, for example, would be uh, in, in you know in addition to the typical sweet orange that we would know the bitter orange also known as the Seville orange um, where which is used for marmalade which you have got in your gin mm. so not the same not the same sort of um, species at all really as the sweet mm. orange uh, and the bergamo orange which is grown mainly in Italy for its peel and produces and is produced mainly for essence in perfumes but also to flavour Earl Grey tea and that is a hybrid of the bitter orange and a lemon so lots of hybridising going on in citruses mm, dirty uh, oranges yeah they are basically <laughs> they are the slags of the tree world they all get it on with each other <laughs> um, I want to tell you about orange juice now this is interesting I think so Commercial orange juice has this long shelf life, um, obviously, and it's made by pasteurising the juice, removing the oxygen from it. Um, otherwise, it goes brown very quickly and tastes disgusting. So you can't just like juice an orange and then store it for five days. It will be grim. So the one you buy has been pasteurised. It's had all the oxygen removed from it, which means most of the taste is gone, <laughs> which means you need to put the flavour back into it. Uh, which is generally made from other orange products. Um, some juice is further processed uh, by drying and then later rehydrating the juice or by concentrating and adding water to the concentrate. Um, so here's the question. Now, kind of put that in the background, that actually it doesn't keep very well and the process to, you know, package it up and put it on your breakfast table is really lengthy. So why is it so popular? when it requires so much processing, as opposed to more stable juices like apple or tomato even. And of course, you know, fermenting things like wine or cider. Why has orange juice come to be the thing that it is? Do you know what I'm going to say? I haven't a clue. Marketing <laughs> bullshit. Ah. It's mm. Marketing bullshit. So <laughs> here we go. This is why orange juice is what it is. In the early 20th century, the California Fruit Growers Association had more orange trees than they knew what to do with. So oranges were just not popular enough to sell um, for all that they were producing. At this time, they were actually cutting trees down because it was just a waste. So in steps marketing genius Albert Lasker. And his idea was to unite the orange growers into one company named Sunkist who would promote the idea of orange juice. So it takes maybe three oranges to give you a glass of orange juice, whereas people were previously having one orange, uh, you know, maybe at a breakfast sitting. So he's already more than tripled the demand for orange juices. Uh, have you heard of, as a, as a marketing person, have you heard of Albert Lasker? I've not, no. So in addition to basically creating orange juice, um, he also introduced into public schools classes that explained to young women about puberty and menstruation, um, which seems completely altruistic, but it was specifically done to promote Kotex tampons. So it's not a bad thing. 
Mm. You know, like he's promoting a product, but actually, net result, good. Um, <laughs> he also is credited with um, creating the soap opera genre because he used radio and TV drama as a media for um, putting advertising out into the world. So it's at the advertisers who paid for these dramas, and it was typically soap powders and things that he was selling yeah, yeah. so that's why they became known as soap, soap operas. operas but it was again it was um albert lasker who did that so I feel like, like i should have heard of this guy <laughs> well this is why i asked you <laughs> because those are like three pretty big things that he's managed to do like mm. proper big societal changes mm. um so uh sunkist in addition to selling the canned juice they also sold the juice extractors so you could do your own if you're just buying the oranges um and if you returned 20 orange wrappers to the company, because for some reason in those days they were individually wrapped, um, they would send you a free Sunkist branded spoon. And that actually made them, for a period of time, the largest purchaser of flatware in America. <laughs> so... I've just had a weird flashback to being a kid, and I remember fruit being in its own little paper mm. covering. Yeah, they did. Oh, God, I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> So the kind of the big push of Sunkist was really that they managed to convince the public that this was an extra nutritious drink that they should be having at breakfast. That was the main message. Initially, it worked well, mainly just for the California region, because they were near the orange farms. And as I said, it doesn't travel or store very well. So it was really mm. only if you were near it that it increased the demand. Then we had World War Two that hastened the uh, the development of this. So. U.S. soldiers abroad needed easy access to vitamin C to prevent scurvy. Their first option was lemon crystals that they'd been sent with, but nobody liked that. So mm. in 1942, the U.S. government offered uh, lots of money to anyone who could solve the problem of preserving orange juice instead. And then in 1945, that led to the creation of juice from concentrate, which was the evaporated liquid, rehydrate it with water or extra orange juice later on because uh, it would have lost its flavour. And the army uh, thought this was great. They ordered half a million cans to be sent over, and they did that just in time for the war to end, which meant <laughs> that they were left with lots of product to shift. So um, they tried to do that through the public, uh, through companies like Minute Maid, which not so big over in this country, but big in the US. Now, it did sell quite a lot, but not enough to be profitable. So... Time for more marketing bullshit. Minute Maid <laughs> threw loads of money and 20,000 shares to the singer Bing Crosby. <laughs> okay. Now, in 1949, ads were playing on the radio constantly. They were still pushing the health benefits, most of all, um, and lots of kind of jingles sung by Bing Crosby, either in his human form or in animated form. <laughs> mm. um, but it worked. They very quickly went into profits. By 1970, 90% of Florida's oranges were being used uh, in the production of orange juice. And that growth continued right up until just before the millennium, when it entered what has become a consistent period of decline, which it's still going through. So there's a few factors involved in that decline. Number one is they could no longer push the health benefits that had been myth busted. Although, yes, it does have vitamin C in it, it's mostly sugar. Mm -hmm. so not as good for you as you know it's got more sugar than most soft drinks so uh, not as good as people thought fewer people were actually eating breakfast orange juice is obviously traditionally consumed at breakfast 
increasingly people are not eating that or at least not at home so um, fewer people having that also the price of oranges fluctuates um, on average it's becoming more expensive uh, it got hit by a blight known as citrus greening so um, that's been part of the price increase which also lowers demand uh, this is being overcome in some locations it's being you know sensitively treated the price is starting to go down again but I think whether that then translates back into sales now that the popularity has already declined will probably need another round of marketing bullshit, I imagine. Mm. I bet you didn't think the story of orange juice was going to be so dramatic. No. Mm -hmm. I really didn't. When you said you were going to talk about orange juice, I thought, okay. <laughs> <laughs> now let's put some alcohol in it. So, okay. uh, <laughs> first of all, the classic, the screwdriver otherwise known as a vodka orange, mostly in this country, but in the mm -hmm. US, a screwdriver. So that originated during World War II, when Americans were in China and Turkey. So they would have had access to the fresh orange juice rather than the concentrated canned stuff that was meant to be sent over. And they would mix neutral spirits, probably vodka, or whatever they could get their hands on with it. And um, it's not entirely clear where the name screwdriver comes from. It's not like properly recorded, I guess, because it wasn't created by a barman specifically. That's usually when it's recorded. But the mm -hmm. name does appear in Turkey in Ankara in 1943 and then again in 44 in Istanbul. Um, there's a story which normally I'd be quite um, suspicious of, but actually I think I believe it because it makes absolute sense. Um, is that the Americans just didn't have a spoon to mix their drink and instead they use a screwdriver as a stirring stick. Um, which I think we've all we've all stirred a tea with a biro, haven't we? Yeah. You know, you just do whatever's lying around. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that I believe that. Um, a similar story is that auto workers in the US used to pour vodka in their breakfast orange juice before starting the shift and used to use screwdrivers to stir up the glass. Um, <laughs> I think that one's a little more contrived than the, just the generic one of soldiers wanted some booze. They used the local juice. They didn't have anything to stir it with. So they used a screwdriver. I believe that one. Uh, vodka became quite popular in America from the 1950s on and so the screwdriver in, in with popularity rose with it um, there were advertising campaigns in the 50s and 60s by brands like Smirnoff that were really pushing the screwdriver as a way to consume their vodka so it, it really um, became popular then and then we start to get into the territory of variations of the screwdriver so it's the foundation for example of the Harvey Wallbanger Mm. Um, I didn't research any more on the Harvey Wallbanger, but I think you did. I did, because my... I remember when I was a kid, my mum used to love a Harvey Wallbanger. Um, and she... Like, Christmas time, she used to make them... And it was definitely a drink, right? I don't know. I hope not. <laughs> I mean, I hope it was. I hope nothing else. <laughs> well... <laughs> um, but I just remember being a kid and when like you're a teenager and your parents let you have a little sip or something it was always like harvey wallbangers and stuff that my mum used to make in the house when she was like feeling fancy at christmas time so yeah i i wanted to just look into that um and it's got a bit of an interesting history with regards to the name so like you said it's normally documented when it's made by um a bartender or a mixologist and it was so um the bartender was Donato Duke Antone. So he ran Duke's Blackwatch Bar on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood in 1952. Uh, he was a very big bartender, really uh, 
well known and obviously when he made a cocktail and it kicked off it was a big one and it would get its name however the name mm, there's a little bit of marketing bullshit in here i'm afraid um so according to mixology mythology I like that term According to Mixology Mythology, the classic was named after a surfer in the 1950s. Um, so apparently it was a man called Tom Harvey who was um, in a surfing competition in California. And he was very sad coming to the bar because he'd lost out on the prize surfing. So he swung by the bar that he often went to and ordered his favourite mixed drink, which was this drink which is now known as the Harvey Wallbanger which is basically a screwdriver which is vodka and orange um, but it's laced with Galliano as well to give it a vanilla-y flavour to it. So we ordered those and drank lots and lots and lots and lots of them uh, and apparently as he downed glass upon glass he started to get a little bit annoyed and angry at missing out of the competition and also being drunk and supposedly was banging his head against the wall out of frustration from the loss. Uh, and so the legend is that that's why it became the Harvey Wallbanger, because of Tom Harvey banging his head on out of frustration on the wall. But we think that is not true. So the bartender who uh, created the concoction, uh, as well as running the Duke's Black Watch bar, um, in the 70s, he became a corporate mixologist and he started working with uh, none other than Smirnoff Vodka and Galliano. <laughs> um, and it's thought that when he teamed up with their marketing teams, in particular a guy called George Bedner, he was the marketing director of McKesson Imports. That's the company that handled Galliano. When he found about the cocktail, he essentially needed a story to creates a marketing bullshit uh, and so this kind of story he would start telling to anyone that would listen um, and Harvey Wallbanger was apparently then born 20 years later than this supposed Tom Harvey guy who was banging his head on the wall in a surf shop. Um, they advertised the Harvey Wallbanger as a replacement for the Bloody Mary during brunch um, in the early 70s then, they created almost like a mascot. It was like a little cartoon surfer guy who looked a bit stressed with uh, sandals and like he'd just come off the beach. And it had a really weird motto, which I'd not heard before, and I also don't fully understand it. So the phrase was, Harvey Wallbanger is the name and I can be made. <laughs> okay, great. I mean, everything's everything's quite literal about this, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so then people started making Harvey Wallbangers. <laughs> so um, it was quickly, it took off in parties, uh, it mm -hmm. was sold in bottles, people named their pets after it, whatever. Um, the craze went on for years, but like most fads, it fizzled out. It had a bit of a, a heyday again in the early noughties, apparently. I don't remember that. Um mm -hmm. And now it's fizzled out again. So yeah, make of it what you will. If you believe Tom Harvey in the 50s, or if you believe the marketing director in the 70s, mm. that's how the Harvey Ballbanger got its name. Would you like to hear some further varieties uh, of, of that earth? Sure. to the screwdriver. Please. So um, if you have a screwdriver uh, with two parts of slow gin, one part of southern comfort, and then fill it with orange juice, that is a slow, comfortable screw. <laughs> 
um, a <laughs> screwdriver with harking back to the warbanger. Um, a screwdriver with one part of slow gin, one part of southern comfort, and one part galliano, and filled with orange juice, is a slow, comfortable screw up against the wall. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and a screwdriver with one part of slow gin, one part of southern comfort, one part galliano, and one part tequila, and filled with orange juice, is a slow, comfortable screw up against the wall, Mexican style. What's what's your screw of choice? <laughs> Well, if you're feeling a little delicate, you can have a uh, non-alcoholic mocktail version of it, usually just made with orange juice and tonic water, and that would be a virgin screw. Oh. <laughs> um, here's, here's my choice. Here's my favourite one. Uh, this is a good story. So a screwdriver with apple juice instead mm -hmm. of orange juice is called an Anita Bryant cocktail. And I don't think you'll guess why, so let me explain. Uh, Anita Bryant was an American singer and a spokeswoman for the Florida Citrus Commission during the 1960s and 70s. So if you're wondering why is a cocktail that should be made with citrus being made with apple named after the Florida Citrus Commission, that's because what you need to know about Anita Bryant is she was a terrible person. <laughs> <laughs> Starting in 1977, she became a very vocal anti-gay rights activist. Um, and because she also promoted orange juice, the gay community retaliated by boycotting it. So <laughs> gay bars across North America stopped serving screwdrivers and invented this apple version and named it after her to replace it. Amazing. <laughs> you can always count on the gays for a sassy protest cocktail. <laughs> The sales and the proceeds of that cocktail went to gay rights activists and helped fund their work against Bryant. The campaign was ultimately successful. Bryant's activism damaged her musical and business career and her contract with the Florida Citrus Commission was um, left to expire in 1980 after they said that she was worn out as a spokesperson. Dusty old bitch. So it worked. <laughs> <laughs> nah, that's, so that's my one of choice. Um... Tequila Sunrise, you all have heard of probably. Mm -hmm. um, the original Tequila Sunrise actually contained tequila, creme de cassis, lime juice, and soda water, and was served at the Arizona Biltmore Hotel, where it was created by Gene Sullet in the 1930s, 40s. But that's not the one you'd recognise, I don't think. It's just the first use of uh, Tequila Sunrise. The real story comes from the 1970s, this is the more popular version that uh, is made with tequila, orange juice, and grenadine. And that was created by Bobby uh, Lossoff and Billy Rice while they were working as bartenders at a bar called The Trident, which is in um, Sausalito in California, which is like just next to San Francisco, basically. And then in 1972, at a private party to kick off the Rolling Stones tour in America, Mick Jagger had one of the cocktails. He liked it very much, obviously. And he and his entourage then started drinking them as like the tour drink. They ordered them all across America. So that spread the word of what a tequila sunrise was. And they even dubbed the tour itself the cocaine and tequila sunrise tour. <laughs> <laughs> Rather dubious honours um, for the tequila yeah. sunrise there. Can um, you imagine being the brand manager for Tequila Sunrise at that point? Oh, God. <laughs> well, well, here's, here's how they did respond. So at the time, the Trident was the largest outlet for tequila in the US. And in 1973, 
Uh, so following this tour, Jose Cuervo picked up on the new drink as a marketing opportunity, put the recipe for that drink on the back of their bottles of tequila and also promoted it in other ways as well. Um, and that same year, the Eagles recorded the song Tequila Sunrise for their album Desperado. So the drink became really popular at that time. So, yeah, they, they didn't mind it at all. It was the 70s, man. They just jumped on it. <laughs> yeah, they loved Coke and tequila. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I'm drinking a Negroni and I'm going to get onto that. But as a preamble, I need to tell you about the Americano. Uh, so that is an IBA official cocktail made of Campari and sweet vermouth. And for the sparkling version, some club soda garnished with a slice of lemon. And that was um, first served by Gaspar Campari in his bar in Milan in the 1860s. Uh, in turn, that appears to be the descendant of the Milano Torino, which was Campari and the bitter liqueur, uh, sorry, Campari, which was the liqueur from Milan, and Punte Mez, which is a vermouth from Turin. Uh, but it didn't have soda water in it. And then that drink itself probably came from the Torino Milano, <laughs> the other way around, which is a concoction of equal parts Campari and Amara Cora, which is another bitters, so just like a bitter drink. Um, so that's how I think we got to the Americano, which is a precursor to Negroni. The Americano actually is the first drink ordered by James Bond in the first novel, by Ian Fleming, Casino Royale. So the very first drink that uh, James Bond hand is, has is an Americano. And he orders quite a few more of them throughout the book series. He always requests that the soda is Perrier. Um, he says, expensive soda water is the cheapest way to improve a poor drink. Make it that what you want? Yeah. Um, I agree. <laughs> yep. <laughs> thought, you, thought you might. Um, so on to Negroni then. Uh, this Italian cocktail is one part gin, one part vermouth. Um, Rosso, red, red and semi-sweet, and one part Campari, garnished with orange peel traditionally. We don't exactly know the origins, um, but the most widely reported account is that it was first mixed in Florence in 1919 at the Cafe Giacosa, and it's thought that it was um, concocted by a member of the Negroni family who asked the bartender to strengthen the Americano by adding gin rather than soda water which absolutely sounds like a good move to me. Uh, the, the bartender also added an orange garnish rather than the typical lemon um, of the Americano just to sort of signify that it was a different drink. Um, after that success, the Negroni family founded Negroni Distillery in Treviso and produced a ready-made version of the drink, which was sold as Antico Negroni in 1919. So I think that makes it really quite an early sort of premix that would have been sold. Um, mm. One of the earliest reports that we've got of the drink comes from Orson Welles while he was working in Rome on uh, Cagliostro in 1947, where he described, uh, as he found it, a new drink called Negroni. He said, the bitters are excellent for your liver. The gin is bad for you. They balance each other. <laughs> I like this guy. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, in 2013, Campari and Imbibe launched Negroni Week, celebrating and marketing the cocktail. Well, but they also raise money uh, philanthropically. So Negroni Week has raised over $3 million for charities worldwide. Uh, and that's held in the first week of September each year, should you wish to partake. Spring. I shall. It's all for a good cause. <laughs> <laughs> it is for a good for charity. Let's do it. Um, 
you may have heard recently, if you like don't really understand but have heard of TikTok, uh, that Negroni Spagliato is a thing, that's a trend. Uh, I'm not going to go into why it's a trend, but I'll tell you what it is. Um, it means, Spagliato means mistaken, mistaken Negroni. Um, and that's because it uses sparkling white wine or Prosecco in place of gin. That's all that is. Mm, that sounds tasty. There are loads of variations on the Negroni. Uh, people seem to love playing with the name, which I think has contributed to the fact that there are so many varieties of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I will bring it back to the theme and say uh, that a Negroni served with a dash of freshly squeezed orange juice has been named the Negroni Malato, which means sick Negroni. And why is that? It's not Italian. It wasn't in Italy. This one was invented in London at um, Bar Piccolino in Exchange Square, which um, in 2007, and I used to work right next to that um, around Mm. that time, and I can confirm exactly why that came to be. It's because it's where the RBS offices are, the Royal Bank of Scotland, and the Italian bankers that worked there during the financial crisis would go to the bars in despair and ask for a morning Negroni with a bit of extra um, orange juice squeezed into it, and that's why they called it the sick <laughs> Negroni. Were so you there with them drinking compensatory it? Compensatory. <laughs> I cannot confirm or deny that, those rumours. Um, but that's what happened. Um, yeah, I won't go into all the varieties of Negroni, there's loads of them. I have got, uh, I've got one thing to end on, but did you have anything else you wanted to add, uh, before I do? No, I'm just enjoying you swigging out your hip flask in the office. It's been a delight. So yeah, speaking of, <laughs> um, so, question for you, what's the worst thing about orange juice? Um, when you accidentally drink it after brushing your teeth. Yes. That is correct. That's exactly what I'm going to tell you about. (laughs) See, this is so true that I knew you'd get that one. (laughs) So, why does this happen? Um, It's got a really strange bitter taste um, when you have orange juice after brushing your teeth and you forget and it's horrible. Um, And this is because of the sodium laureth sulfate, or SLS, that's in the toothpaste. So, um, they are... So, this ingredient is known as a surfactant. Um, which you also get in shampoos and detergents. And that's to help kind of make it foamy. It's to help swish and spread the product in a foamy lather. The bubbly foam is kind of, you know, it's good for a toothpaste, but what it does as a chemical, SLS, is it suppresses the receptors in your taste buds that pick up on sweet flavours specifically. Mm -hmm. So you're unable to taste the sweet notes in the juice. But not only that, it also breaks apart fatty molecules on your tongue, um, which are called phospholipids, and that um, uh, uh, prevents you from tasting bitter flavours. So when you add SLS all into that equation, you get suppressed sweet flavours and enhanced bitter flavours, which is why Mm. it tastes so weird and unpleasant. Hmm. Now you know specifically why that's a thing. It's because it changes your taste buds. I once found out, um, purely by accident, that you get the opposite effect, really, if you eat a banana and then brush your teeth. Because <laughs> um, I couldn't get my head around it. I, I Obviously, 
eating a banana, forgot I had brushed my teeth, so I went to brush my teeth straight away and then couldn't get over how just overly refreshing. I know like brushing your teeth is nice and refreshing anyway, but I can't quite describe what it was. It it was just so refreshing brushing my teeth after eating a banana. It took me a while to work out at first. I was like, why am, why is this so enjoyable this time around brushing my teeth? And then I thought the only thing I've done different is eat a banana. So then I tried it again the next day and it was like, oh yeah, this is really good. And everyone I speak to about it, they won't try it because they think, understandably, they think I'm trying to trick them and it's going to be just as disgusting as the orange juice effect, but it's not. I Honestly, try it. Eat a banana, then brush your teeth. It's a taste sensation. <laughs> and if you would like to hear more stories of Lear and her bananas, uh, tune in next time. <laughs> so, our glasses have run dry, which means it's time to get on our Negronis and beg for more. Aren't you glad for puns? Cheers, everybody! <laughs> no. Wherever I may roam, or land or sea or home, you can always hear me sing in this song, show me the way to go banana-nubber-nubber. I was trying to say a, I'm a banana-nubber-that, but I can't even get it out. I'm a, no. I'm a banana-having-none-of-that. No, can't even nope. do a pun with banana. Nope. Made as much sense as what you were saying earlier. <laughs> Look, I could have ended with one of the Jafantia slow, comfortable, screw against the wall Mexican style jokes, but I chose not to. That's it, the high ground. <laughs> it, says something when, it says something when puns are the high ground. <laughs> <laughs>